Well, Bokertov, good morning. Welcome to our Aliyah day. I am so very glad to be with you this morning. And uh, I apologize for not being able to be here yesterday for the uh, the fourth Aliyah of Peku Day. But <clears throat> I had, I, I, had uh, I don't know, come down with some type of uh, virus. And so... Um, had been struggling pretty much all week, and yesterday was particularly difficult. And uh, I was—I said to myself, you know, I've got to do the Aliyah. Uh, but I looked horrible. I felt terrible. And Rebetzin said, "No, get back in bed." So that's what I did. So Brukashim, but I'm feeling much better today. Still not a hundred percent, but I feel—I <clears throat> feel alive. Praise God. Well, Brukashim. For, uh, you know, everything that God does in our life is for the best. Gam Zuletova, Baruch So today we are in the fifth Aliyah. Today would be the fifth reading, of the fifth Aliyah of Peku Day. Which is going to be found in your Art Scroll Chumash on 537. By the way, thank you for all of your prayers. Very, very much appreciated and uh, obviously effective. So thank you very, very much. I, I, I sincerely mean that. Everybody who is praying, and uh, it's, just, it's, just, it's a blessing. Uh, all right, page 537 of the Humash, chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. So it says, <clears throat> Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, On the day of the first new moon, on the first day of the month, uh, you shall erect the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, there you shall place the ark of testimony and screen the ark with the partition. You shall bring the table and prepare its setting, bring the menorah and kindle its lamps. You shall place the gold altar for incense in front of the ark of testimony and place the curtain of the entrance of the tabernacle. You shall place the elevation offering altar in front of the entrance of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. You shall place the uh, the laver, the ore, between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water there. You shall place the courtyard all around, and in place the curtain at the gate to the courtyard. You should take the anointment oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything that's in it. Sanctify it and its utensils, and it shall become holy. You shall anoint the elevation offering altar and all its utensils, and you shall sanctify the altar, and the altar shall become holy of holies. Now, just as a side note here about the, this is talking about the, the outer altar, the copper altar, that uh, it becomes a holy of holies. The sages point out it doesn't mean that it takes the place of the holy holies, but rather, because of what's being offered on it, because of its significance, it is a holy of holies. This is what Yeshua was talking about when he rebuked uh, some of the Pharisees and said, what is more valuable, the altar that makes the offering holy or the, or the offering itself that's placed upon the altar? If the altar is the holy of holies, then obviously anything that comes in contact with it is elevated to a holy status. So it says in verse 11, You shall anoint the laver and its stands and sanctify it. You shall bring Aaron and his sons near to the entrance of the tent of meeting and immerse them in water. It's a mikvah. It's a mikvah in the water. 
You shall dress Aaron in the sacred vestments and anoint him, and you shall sanctify him, and he shall minister to me. And his sons you shall bring near and dress them in tunics. You shall anoint them as you anointed their father, and they shall minister to me. And so it shall be that their anointment shall be for them for, e for eternal priesthood for their generations. An eternal priesthood for their generations. Moshe did according to everything that Hashem commanded him, so he did. So <clears throat> yesterday, while I was uh, laying there in a semi-conscious state, I was... Uh, <laughs> I'm half kidding. So anyway, I happened to catch a, uh, as I turned on the TV, I was looking for something. And there, when I t first turned on, there was a, a uh, some pastor person, I don't know who, I have no idea who they are, teaching. And so I spent just a minute or two to listen because he was talking about Caiaphas and how uh, Caiaphas, uh, you know, was presiding over the trial of the Messiah and so on. And something he said I thought was very interesting. He said that one of the uh, reasons Caiaphas was motivated to turn upon Yeshua is because he realized that his job was being threatened. Why? Because Yeshua was going to come and do away with the priesthood and ostensibly the temple and both. And uh, Caiaphas would be out of a job. And so there are several problems with that. All right. Number one, it's true that Caiaphas was jealous, would have been jealous of the Mashiach. Why? Because everybody was following after him. And there was the high priest, had, was at that time, the high priest had become a uh, political office. Now, everything I'm telling you, you can just, uh, you can go to the Encyclopedia Judaica and learn about this. You can go to uh, Josephus' writings and learn about this. It's really not, you know, it's, it's, not anything profound, it's just historical fact, that the high priest office had become a political office. It was bought and paid for by the Roman government. Caiaphas was just a Roman puppet. Who knows if he was even qualified for the office? Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. No, it doesn't really say. Every time a new governor came from Rome, he would appoint a new high priest. The high priest was supposed to serve for life, right? Of course, right. But under this rule, he would only serve at the pleasure of whoever the Roman governor was. So in this case, Pontius Pilate chose Caiaphas, probably because, most likely, if you read Josephus' writings, the high priest, they would bid for the office. So whoever gave the highest bribe to the Roman governor was often selected, but also coupled with that was the concept that the high priest is going to work hand-in-hand -hand with the governor to keep the peace. And so everybody was kind of like um, under the high priest's rule. He was the de facto leader. Uh, underneath the Roman governor. He's the one that, he's supposed to keep all the Jews in line. And so now everybody's going after Yeshua, and so this is a problem. This is why when Yeshua entered into the holy city, the priests, who are the, the Sadducees, not the Pharisees, but the Sadducees, they said, look, the whole world is going after him. We've got to do something about this. But going back to what the pastor said, he said, look, he's going he's to put you out of a job because there's not going to be a priesthood anymore is absurd. Because it doesn't follow the historical reality, it doesn't follow the biblical truth, it doesn't follow any. Look, if, if that's true, then the day that Yeshua was resurrected from the dead uh, and left the tomb, at that the very instant, if this was true, then, then God would have destroyed the temple, would have crumbled upon himself, the priesthood would have been over. Why? Because uh, Yeshua was resurrected. If it was a situation in which God intended to end the priesthood, there's a problem with that, we just read it, but if that was his intention... 
then why did it take another 40 plus years for that to happen? Why? And why, if that was the intention, did Yeshua not communicate that to his disciples? Because they continued to sacrifice and continued to operate within the temple system. He forgot to mention that his sacrifice was going to do away with the priesthood. To me, that's a pretty big thing to forget to to talk about. After three years of training. Hey, guys, I forgot to tell you that when I come back, uh, there's no more temple sacrifice. In fact, it's never, you never said that. But going back to the Torah, this is, this is what happens when you don't have Torah in your life. The Torah says that the priesthood is going to be an everlasting, that is an eternal priesthood. So it says here in the Atzgo Humash, for an eternal priesthood. Before this anointment, the sanctity conferred upon the Kohanim had been only for them, but it would not have been inherited by the children. Now, the anointment made their priesthood eternal to remain in their family throughout the generations. So the Torah, and this is not the only place it says this, but the Torah makes it clear that the priesthood is eternal. Moreover, it says that that there will be a third temple. And uh, Ezekiel makes it plain that in that third temple there will be sacrifices. And if that's not enough, at the end of the book of Isaiah, it's talking about even bringing up the Gentiles uh, who will become converts. And it says that God's going to make some of them priests and some of them Levites. And that happens in the end times, in the end days, in the Messianic era. So I just want to point this out. This is why we need to study the Torah. This is why it needs to be our foundation, because otherwise we have all kinds of of inaccurate um biblical ideas that that throw us off. So if, if it is true that God's intention was to nullify the priesthood, and many, many people, if not most people who believe in the Mashiach, think that today. That I mean, even a lot of Messianics think that today. That Yeshua came and did away with the priesthood, did away with the sacrifices, did away with the temple. Listen, the only reason we don't sacrifice today is because you, there's no temple. The reality is, if you had, if you and I had been alive in Jerusalem and we had been followers of the Yeshua, the day after his resurrection, we would have been going to the temple and making sacrifices. And we would have continued doing that for 40 years. And the re- only reason we would have stopped is because either A, we had been martyred, or B, the temple had been destroyed. That's it. Because the Bible makes it clear that this the priesthood is eternal. So therefore, if the idea is, if our if our theology is that Yeshua did away with the sacrifices, he did away with the priesthood, then we have to come back and reconcile with these this verse that the priesthood is eternal because we have a big problem. And this is where I want you to continue to encourage you and train you in critical thinking. We have to come back and say, wait a minute, okay, so Yeshua comes and nullifies the priesthood, does away with it, cancels it, ends it, changes it, whatever. But yet in the scriptures, it says that the priesthood is eternal, which can only mean one of two things. Either what we believe about what Yeshua did is inaccurate, or God changed. And if we believe that, if we believe that the latter, that God changed, now we have a bigger problem. 
Now we've got to go back and look at the verse and say where God said the priesthood is eternal, and now we're saying, well, that verse isn't accurate because, in fact, the priesthood was not eternal. And if that is true, chas shalom, now we've got an even bigger problem. Because now, how can we trust any verse of Scripture? Now, how can we even know anything? How can we even know that there's a creation story is accurate? How can we know that what, what the King David wrote in the Psalms is accurate? How can we say that, uh, you know, that even what Yeshua did is accurate? So now we have a God who changes his mind. Who's to say he's not going to change his mind down the road? If he changes, he changes. Who's to say, what, he can only change once? He's only got one time to change? That's, that's his rule? So you see, this is problematic. So there's a, there's a reason why Yeshua did what he did. It wasn't to nullify the priesthood. And we're going to get to that in just one second. <clears throat> as we look at the Midrash Rabbah, Pekude. It has to do with the Akedah of Isaac. It's actually mentioned here in, uh, in Pekude. Midrash Rabbah Pekude. I want to touch on something before I get there. I'll just I'll take a little sidestep. This is from Midrash Rabbah Pekude 51.8. This is found in the insights. Let me go ahead and read 51.8, this sec- segment that the inside is going to actually expound upon. It says, another interpretation, these are the reckonings of the tabernacle. What is the reason that this passage begins with the word Ele, these? It says, when the Holy One, blessed be He, gave, us the Torah to, gave the Torah to Israel, they were not susceptible to the angel of death, having dominion over them. For it says, the tablets were God's handiwork, and the scripture was the, the Spirit of God engraved on the tablets. What is scripture teaching by using the word Harut? Rabbi Yehuda says, accepting the Torah merited the nation freedom for the exiles. And Rabbi Nechyama says, it merited them freedom from the angel of death. Now remember, Harut is engraved and Cherut is freedom. So the sages looked at this and said, don't read Harut engraved, but read Cherut, freedom. So the, in telling us that the uh, Torah is freedom, and indeed it is. It is quite the opposite of bondage. The irony is that having no law, having no <clears throat> set standard, is in fact bondage. This is where legalism really comes in. When you don't have Torah, then you start making stuff up. And this is what happens when you have denominations or groups that start making stuff up. You have to, like, uh, like one particular group may say, women aren't allowed to wear makeup, Another one might say, well, men aren't allowed to, uh, to uh, have beards or whatever. You start making things up, and that's where legalism comes in. Legalism is only legalism when it's not God's word. It's not legalism to follow God's rules. Let me say that again. It's not legalism to follow God's rules. If God said to do it and you do it, that's not being legalistic. That's being obedient. It's only legalistic if you're following rules that aren't God's. Or, I should say, because I know I just realized that somebody could say, well, what about the rabbis? No, 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 no. The rabbis were empowered by God to make certain rules. Pastor Mike on 5th Street downtown is not empowered by God. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. He's probably a nice guy, but he doesn't. He's not a sage. 
He didn't stand at the, sit in the Sanhedrin. But I digress. You know, anyway. So it says here, according to Rabbi Yitzhak Hunter, it says here in the insides, connection between Harut engraved and Harut freedom from the angel of death runs much deeper than the verbal similarity. Our sages teach that the Torah and Israel are one. The Torah and Israel are one. Indeed, anyone present at a person's death is halakhically required to rend his garment as if he were witnessing the burning of a Torah scroll. That is from Moed Katan 25a. Just as a scroll's parchment bears the script upon it, so the human soul bears, or excuse me, the human body rather, bears the soul within it. In both cases, the whole is a composite of two distinct elements. These elements can be separated, resulting in ruin or death. So in other words, because of our sin, it is possible that we can die. And when we die, our body dies, but our soul lives. Why? Because our soul is eternal. And our soul represents the Holy Torah, which is written, as it were, inscribed on the parchment, which is our body. But this, it says, is not so with the tablets. Their text was not ink on the stone surface, but engraved on the material itself. Hence, the letters and the parchment were one and inseparable. Concurrent with the giving of these tablets, a new body-soul relationship was introduced for Israel. The soul was etched into the body in a fusion of permanence that did not allow for separation or death. So in other words, at the giving of the Torah Mount Sinai, when the angel of death was vanquished from us, then we, our, our souls were engraved in our bodies. This is why we, the death did not have dominion over us now because it could not separate us. So it says, that is what our Midrash means when it says that the engraved nature of the tablets, the Harut nature of the tablets, text translated into Jewish freedom, Harut from the angel of death, for the Torah and Israel are one. Once we became one with the Torah, then death had to flee with us, from us. Why? Because our souls became one with our bodies. So Yeshua had to come along and undo the mess. He had to suffer. He had to die in order to bring this back to reality. So just another segment here. It says, Rabbi Pincus Behemoth said in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, who said it in the name of Rabbi Eliezer, the son of Rabbi Yoshe HaGalil, the Holy must be, he said, if the angel of death were to come and say to me, why was I created? I would say to him, I have created you to be a ruler over the nations of the world. Now, this is a very sobering statement from the Midrash Rabbah to somebody who is not a part of Israel, not a part of Jews, not a part of Hebrews, which are all synonymous terms. If you, you, you cannot be Israel if you're not Jewish. You cannot be Jewish if you're not Hebrew. You can't be Hebrew if you're not Israel. They're all synonymous terms. So it says here that God has said to the angel of death, you have dominion over the nations. But... You do not have dominion over my children. Who is his children? Israel. So it says, For once they accepted the Torah, the Holy One must be he clothed them with the splendor of his glory. What's the glory of God? The Torah. We're, notice that in some of the apostolic writings, it talks about us being clothed with Messiah. Once we become, we accept rather the Torah, 
We are clothed with Mashiach. We're clothed with God's glory. Now keep in mind that this is what salvation is. Someone might ask, and I understand because of 2,000 years of um, confusion. They said, do you have to be converted to be saved? And I understand why people ask that question. And as I've said countless times before, I make no judgments about, and I have no interest in making any judgments about um, people in XYZ church, wherever they are. Only God knows. Only God can make that judgment. He's the only judge, and it's all that matters. All I can tell you is what the Bible actually says, what the truth is, actu- what the truth actually is, and then that's all I can say. But here's the reality: to say or to ask the question, rather, do I have to be converted in order to be saved, is kind of an oxymor- oxymoron kind of question. Because, speaking from the standpoint of a non-Jew, to accept the Jewish Messiah is to accept the Jewish God is to accept the Jewish Bible, which is the Torah. So therefore, it is to conform your life now to living like the Messiah, to subjecting your your will to the will of the living God of Israel, and therefore to become, in all ways, practical and spiritual, a Jew, a Hebrew, an Israelite. That, my friends, is salvation. Salvation is coming into covenant Torah with the living God. Vis-a-vis the Mashiach, of course, who gives us the atonement necessary to do so. So to ask the question, must I be converted in order to be saved, is kind of an oxymoron. It's a, a little not... I understand. Don't, I'm, not being, I'm not being critical. I understand why somebody would ask the question. I'm just trying to point out the nonsensical nature of such a question. Because naturally you can't be saved unless you're converted. Obviously. It's, imp- it's an impossibility to be in covenant saved and not be converted. You understand? Now again, I'm not saying, don't please don't misunderstand me and say, well, what about my Uncle Frank who's been a Baptist for 30 years? I make no judgments about Uncle Frank. I'm only telling you what the Bible says. I understand 2,000 years of messed up theology. There's probably a whole lot of court cases in Shemayim where people are getting passes. But that doesn't change the truth. I'm just saying that when we come to God, we are going through a conversion. Now, going back to this concept of priesthood lasting forever, there is a statement here from Rabbi Monk. See if I can find it right quick. So, the tabernacle is... Uh, the Midrash teaches that all the components of the tabernacle were made, they were completed, everything was, uh, you know, finalized on the 28th day of Kislev. Sound familiar? Yes, Hanukkah. The 25th day of Kislev. However, God told Moses, don't erect the tabernacle until the first day of Nisan. Now, there's many reasons why he did that. But one of the reasons given by Rabbi Monk is that the first day of Nisan that year was going to be on a Sunday, which was the anniversary of the first day of creation. Why was it important for Yeshua to be raised to life on a a Yom Rishon on a Sunday? Was it because God's intention was to change the Sabbath 
from Saturday to Sunday? Absolutely not. <clears throat> Absolutely not. You cannot change the eternal Sabbath. The word eternal makes that an impossibility. If the Sabbath is eternal, then changing it would nullify the, its eternal nature, which would make that an impossibility. Clear enough? Good. So obviously that's not the reason. So what was significant about him being raised on a Sunday? Because that is significant. You know, God doesn't do anything by just happenstance. There's a reason why. Why? Because the resurrection of the Mashiach represented a new spiritual creation. New as in renewed. A renewal of what was lost in Ghana Din. The second Adam now making up for what the first Adam had done. And this is why it was done on a, on a Sunday, which is why the tabernacle was erected on a Sunday. Yeshua is the tabernacle erected on a Sunday. Also, as it says here, Rabbi Monk says, this great day was predestined to begin a new era. Another reason given for why this uh, was to take place on the first of Nisan is because this was the birthday of Isaac. And so the tabernacle was erected during this time in, in, in memorial of Isaac and specifically what Isaac had done. Incidentally, we have two Akidas, right? We have Isaac and we have Yeshua. Akidah means binding. It has to do with the son who was offered um, by, uh, well, by Abraham, Isaac, was offered on Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount. And then later we have the second Akidah, who is Yeshua, also offered by his father. But I don't, I don't have time to teach about the Akidah, but <clears throat> we have here a very important lesson. We have Isaac, who's born in Nisan. When is it said that Yeshua was born? We don't really know 100% for sure, but we surmise that he was born in Tishrei, right? That's when I believe the third and final temple will come down, will be in Tishrei. Why? Why was he born in Tishrei? Why was Isaac born in Nisan? Because Isaac's the first Akidah, representing the uh, former reign, that is the festivals. And Yeshua's the final Akidah, representing the latter reign's festivals of atonement and forgiveness and Teshuvah, which is all found in Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the 40 days of Teshuvah, etc. But, going back here, it says, I want you to listen to this, right? Yeshua's mission was to be the final Akida. He was to be the final atonement, not the final sacrifice. There's still going to be sacrifices. Yes, there will be a third temple, and news to all of us is there will be sacrifices. Do we have the full understanding, explanation of all that? No, we don't, but we do know that there will be sacrifices. Why and how can there be sacrifices if Yeshua is the final Akida? The same reason there are sacrifices in the temple after Isaac. Everything pointed to Isaac. Those lambs, those bulls, those turtle doves, even the, uh, the, the, the bread, the wine libations, all of it was only symbolic of what Isaac had already done. This is why you don't need sacrifices. This is why you don't need a temple to have forgiveness. Some people say, well, how do the Jews get forgiveness today if there's no sacrifices? We don't need a temple. Because... If you don't understand who Yeshua is, we don't need a temple because of Isaac. If you understand who Yeshua is, we don't need a temple because of him. Doesn't mean we won't ever have a temple again. May there be a third temple speedily in our day. It just means that the reality is found in Mashiach. The type, the shadow, is found in the offering. 
All right. I know that there's a lot of deep subjects here. So if you don't quite get it, don't be discouraged. It Sometimes it takes uh, a while. You're not going to get it. This is a pretty, uh, pretty much in-depth subject here. We can't really cover it all in 30 minutes. But it says, Yofei Torah offers a straightforward explanation. When Abraham bound Isaac atop the altar at the Akedah, Isaac attained the status of an unblemished sacrifice, whose merit would grant the Jewish people atonement throughout the ages. That's from Medrash Tankuma, Vayera 23. So the Jewish idea is that Isaac's offering, the offering of the only begotten son by Abraham, was a source of atonement for Jews for all generations. Okay? So, I want to read another part here because this has to do with a, a Midrash where they're asking, the scoffers are asking, how can Moses, the son of Amram, how can he be the one to, to offer up, or excuse me, to erect the tabernacle? And I want to just point this out because there is um, correlation, obviously, between Messiah, Yeshua, and Moses, and this is one of them. It said, it is by grappling determinedly and consistently with one's base desires that one eventually rises above them victorious and exalted. So if you struggle with the Yetzir Hara, it's actually part of your conditioning. I just want to put that out as an aside. We struggle with the Yetzir Hara, it's like lifting weights. The weights, nobody wants to lift the weights. It's, it's effort, it's work. But without lifting the weights, we can't build strength. So by struggling with our Yetzirah, everybody would say, I wish I didn't have to struggle. I wish I wasn't tempted all the time. I wish I, I didn't have to constantly fight my thoughts or, or whatever, whatever it is. And God is saying, no, I'm doing that. This is all weight training for you. This is all physical therapy for you. The reason I gave her the Yetzirah is so that you could become some stronger spiritually. So it says here, the scoffers argued that because Moses was the son of Amron, who was a man who never sinned, Baba Basra 17a. He never sinned. Now, his father did die. Why? Because of the sin of Adam. That's where original sin comes into play in Jewish thought. But it is possible to live a life, a sinless life. It is absolutely possible. Only four people have done it. He's one of the four. So it says here, he was a man who never sinned. So wait a minute. The, re the first redeemer was from someone who was sinless. So it says, Moses, by nature, free of evil and not subject to such conflict. So they were upset. They were upset that it seemed as if the tabernacle was being erected by someone who had no uh, ability to relate to them about what it's like to fight the Yetzer Hara. Do you understand what I just said? The scoffers were upset because, listen, how can we have a redeemer? How can we have somebody who's setting up a, a tabernacle for us who doesn't know what it's like to fight the Yetzirah? That's what it's saying here. goes on to explain that every human fights the Yetzirah, and so they were mistaken, etc., etc., but that's the point. Going back to Isaac, it says, in Rabbi Monk, it says, it was Isaac who personified in its most perfect form the idea of sacrifice in honor of God. And it is precisely this notion which would henceforth reign over the newly erected tabernacle. Through the Akedah, 
Isaac offered himself as a gift to Hashem, and this limitless devotion gave humanity an immortal lesson in sacrifice, even unto death for the love of God. That is why the sanctuary draws inspiration from the sublime example of Isaac. It is dedicated, as it were, to Isaac's memory. It is consecrated on a day recalling his birth. So Yeshua comes along, and he is the final Akidah. Different in Isaac in what way? In that he actually died and was actually resurrected. And resurrected on a Sunday, just like the tabernacle was erected on a Sunday. And he became the source of atonement for all generations, past, present, and future. End of our Aliyah today. Thank you for joining me with God's help. We'll be back tomorrow for the 6th and 7th Aliyah. Until then, may you have a bright and beautiful and may sync day, and we will look forward to seeing you then. Shalom, shalom.